So we're starting a, a new series today called Love Where You Live. Love Where You Live, and we're asking the question, what does it look like to do that? How do we love where we live? And, and I mean, you could ask that question one of two, two ways. You know, you could ask it with the, you know, how do I love where I live? Like, how do I love the place that I live? But also, how do I love in the place that I live? Like, how do I love the people around me, the world around me, uh, and, and come to a place where I love this place? I'm, right from the beginning, I'm, I'm gonna tell you from the start, we're coming around this idea of loving our neighbors in this series. Uh, and maybe you're thinking, if, you, if you've been with us for any uh, amount of time, you're like, okay, Phil, really? We're gonna talk again about loving our neighbors? Like, haven't we talked about that enough? Haven't we already covered that? Like, isn't, I mean, do we really need to talk about loving our neighbors again? And my answer to you is, you're darn right we need to talk about it again. Uh, we're gonna keep talking about it over and over and over again. Um, in fact, we're actually intentional about that. It doesn't just happen. We intentionally say, hey, at least one, like one series, a calendar year usually, we're gonna talk about loving our neighbors. And here's why, you can call us crazy, you can call us simplistic, um, but we, we just happen to think uh, when Jesus says something is the greatest or the most important thing, we think we should probably pay attention to that and go, you know what, I think this Jesus guy might have been right, and if he says something is the most important, we should focus on that, we should talk about that, we should come back to that over and over again and remind ourselves of what he actually said because when someone predicts their own death and resurrection and then actually pulls it off, we're like, should probably listen to that guy. We're gonna go with whatever he says. And so we're all in on Jesus and we wanna focus on what he says. We, like, we absolutely, we believe that you know, he, he lived, like that, that is just a fact, we know that. He, he, was, he was crucified and killed by, by, by Rome, we know that, that's a fact, like that's historically verifiable. And we believe that he rose from the dead and there's overwhelming evidence for that and literally millions of people throughout history uh, have believed that as well. And so we're like, we're just going with whatever he says, and, and we're leaning into what he says is most important, and so that's just something you should know about us, just a little bit of an aside. We're a Jesus church. <laughs> I had someone message me um, on Facebook Messenger this week, and they were just curious, hey, so what kind of church are you? And I'm like, we're a Jesus church, and I, like, I wasn't like sarcastic. It wasn't like, well, you know, Jesus is always the right answer, but authentically, we are a Jesus church. We're, we're not like tied to any denomination. Um, we're not, you know, high church or liturgical where we have like traditions and red liturgies, and some of you are like, yeah, I know, we can tell. Um, we would be what some would call maybe like an independent or, you know, non-denominational or a Bible church, and I don't even like describing us as a Bible church. Not that we don't love the Bible, we love scripture, we teach scripture, we think it's inspired, it's authoritative, and it's all those good things, but the point of the Bible is to get us to Jesus. And so like, hey, we're a Jesus church. There's like a giant, you know, Jesus behind us for a reason. And again, man, we're gonna go with whatever he says. What he says is important. And if we're going to love where we live, if we wanna do that well, which, spoiler alert, if you would consider yourself to be a Christian, it's not really an option. Like, we have to do it. We wanna look at what Jesus says about that. So we're gonna jump in today um, and take a look at what he has to say about that. Now, we're gonna be a couple different places. Primarily, we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark is one of four accounts that we have of the life of Jesus. Four accounts of the good news of Jesus and his kingdom. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're gonna be looking uh, in Mark's account today, Mark chapter 12. So 
if you have a Bible with you and you would like to go there, I invite you to do that. It's also going to be on our screens. You're always welcome to read our screens or use your device or a Bible. Um, I, I will always give you the option to say, hey, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up because it's like, I'm, well, I guess it's, it's not going to be like subliminal anymore. I'm subliminally training you to be like, open this thing up more than just on Sunday mornings, okay? When you're at home, you're not going to have me with a screen with you at home because that would just be weird. You don't want me with you at home every single day. You would get tired of me, I promise. So if you got a Bible, you can open it up or you can just be up on our screens. Mark chapter 12, we are going to jump in starting in verse 28. Uh, this is what we read. It says that one of the teachers of the law, he came and he heard them debating. So we, we have this guy who's a teacher of the law. Uh, some of your translations, if you're looking at a different translation, might say a lawyer. And don't think lawyer like we think, somebody that goes and litigates people, but an expert in the law. So we have a, he's a teacher, he's an expert, he's a lawyer in what, what's called the law. We would, we would say the, the Old Testament. It's the Old Covenant. It's the Jewish scriptures. And this guy was a pro. Like he knew it inside and out, front and back, cover to cover. He was an expert in the law. And he, he comes up to Jesus, and it says that he, he notices, he's noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He's, Jesus is in a, a dialogue with some other religious leaders, a group of Sadducees, and this teacher of the law comes up, and he hears the conversation that Jesus is having with them, and he must be thinking, okay, that, that's pretty good, um, so I've got something I'd like to ask Jesus. And so this teacher in the law comes to Jesus, and, and he asks him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Of all the commandments, which is the most I important? So here we have an expert in the law, and there are, there are 600, over 600, like 613 Old Testament commandments. And so his question is like, Jesus, I want you to take 613 and boil it down to one. Can you do that for me? Now, we don't, we don't really know the nature of the, this the teacher of the law, this expert in the law. We don't know the nature of his request. Is he sincere or not? Because sometimes the religious leaders uh, would, would try to get Jesus kind of tripped up in his words. Uh, they would try to get him into trouble, and, and into trouble with uh, you know, their religious system, into trouble with the crowds. But there are other times where some of the religious leaders are sincere. They're really wanting to know from Jesus because they can tell that this guy's from God. And so we don't, we don't really know that where this guy's coming from. Is he trying to trip Jesus up, or is he actually sincere? doesn't matter. The, the meaning of the, this in, encounter remains the same. So he's like, I want you to take all these laws and boil them down into one. Can you do that? What is the most important law? And Jesus doesn't hesitate. He, he doesn't like rebuke the guy or like laugh him off. He doesn't, he's not just like, I reject your premise outright. You can't reduce them all. They're all important. That's not what Jesus does. He says, oh, you, you want me to tell you the most important one? That's easy. And he launches into this response. He says, the most important one, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. So Jesus says, okay, greatest command, I got it, no problem. You're gonna, you're gonna love God with everything in you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus doesn't just pull this out of, out of thin air. He's actually quoting the Old Testament. Uh, this is straight from what we would call the Old Testament. It's from the book of Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, and it's what's called the Shema. It's, it's like this, this prayer that Jewish people pray every single day, and it's called the Shema because in Hebrew, the first word that means hear or listen is the word Shema. 
And so Jesus reaches back into his scripture, remembering that man, he, Jesus would have been just immersed in the Old Testament, day after day, reading it, studying it. He knew it inside and out. That, that Jesus wasn't just dropped into history with no context. You know, we talk about this sometimes, that he came as the fulfillment to the Jewish scriptures, that there was already a story several thousand years in the making, and Jesus came to bring that to fulfillment, to completion, and so he, he points back into the nation's history, points back into his scriptures, and says, here's what's most important. Hear, O Israel, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. God is one, right? The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, what's interesting is like and bear with me for a second, because this is, this is actually, it's important. There is no, in the Old Testament here, there's no Hebrew word for, for is. Like we have, the, like the, the verb that means like the present tense state of being, we use the word is in English. Like they don't have that. They've got words for the future tense and words for the past, what we would say will be or was, but there's no is. It was just, they got there by combining the, like the way the words were structured when they put two things up against each other, but whenever we translate that into English, we've got to have the word is. And so there's a question about where do you put that? If we were literally to just translate this into Hebrew, it, it would sound like this, like, Lord our God, Lord one. And you're like, Lord our God, Lord one. That's too many nouns. I need a verb. That doesn't make sense if it's just Lord our God, Lord one. The word is needs to be in there somewhere. But where do we put it? There's, you know, there's some debate over that. And it, the meaning, like, like the change of meaning isn't super significant, but it does add a different nuance if you put it there, um, you know, kind of how we're, I think, used to hearing it, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, we put it there in that place, it kind of becomes a statement of like, uh, what is God's essence? You know, is God one kind of a question. If we put the is at the beginning, the Lord is our God, the Lord one, it becomes more uh, of a statement about the relationship between Israel and God. And so which one is it? Is it the Lord our God, the Lord is one, or the Lord is God, the Lord one? Based on the overall kind of context of Deuteronomy, as we look at Israel's uh, history throughout the Old Testament, it's actually that second meaning that seems to fit the best. That this isn't a statement about the philosophical nature of God's essence. Is God one? Is God many? Like what, what is it? That's not what they're getting at, but rather it's a statement about complete devotion to God, like allegiance to God, commitment to God. It's this statement that says, the Lord is God, the Lord alone. Israel's coming out of a context of saying, look, that, that the Lord is God, not any of the gods of the other nations around us. In fact, the, like the, the word that's, that we read as Lord in the Old Testament, and it's usually all capitals, L-O-R-D, that's actually what the, the scribes would put in there instead of using the name of God, because they're not going to write God's name out. It's not just a generic title like Lord. It is, no, we are talking about the God of the Hebrews. We're talking about Yahweh. And so this is a statement that says, Hero Israel, Yahweh is God and Yahweh alone. Don't go chasing after, don't look after the gods of these foreign nations or any of the other gods. There is all, there's no one who compares to the Lord your God. No one else compares to Yahweh. And so when Jesus is asked, what's the greatest command? He says, oh, well, that's easy, here it is. Like the, the Lord is God alone. He is your God, no one else. The Lord alone is your God and love him with everything that you have in you, everything. Now if we're being honest, that's kind of what we'd expect, right? 
Like that's kind of the, like the church thing. It's like, okay, yeah, yeah, you, you know, love God with all you've got. Or we may say, because you know, we're, we're followers of Jesus, you know, like we believe that Jesus has revealed who God truly is, like the, the fullest, most accurate picture we can have of God. We might say, you'll be fully committed to Jesus. Love Jesus with everything that you have. Yes. And that's the answer that we would expect. But there's a problem with that. There's not a problem with loving God with everything you have. But the problem is, how do you measure that? How, how do you really tell... Is my allegiance, is my commitment fully to God or not? Because we, we could all probably come up with different definitions of that. And, and I could say, yep, I'm loving God, and here's why, because I, I know that I'm fully committed to God because I go to church, and I read my Bible, and I give a little bit, and I only listen to worship music, and I try really, really hard not to swear. So I'm loving God, right? Like, and that's my definition of it. But would you know that I'm loving God? And would I be able to look at your life and know that you're loving God? It's like if, it, if we just leave it at, okay, love God with everything that you have in you, that's kind of vague. That's kind of like, okay, well, how do I do that? But Jesus doesn't stop. That what he says next brings clarity to what it looks like played out in our lives to be committed to Jesus and to follow him alone. So, so you know, love God with everything in you. That's the greatest command. And then he, he just keeps going and says, and the second is this. Can we stop for a minute? Like the second is this. Have you ever thought, you can't have a second greatest command. You can't have a second greatest of anything. Like the little ending, E-S-T, at the end of a word implies that there is only one. You can only have one greatest of something. I can't have greatest and greatest number two because by definition, when something becomes greatest number two, it's no longer the greatest. And Jesus is like, no, no, the second greatest. It's like, wait, how does that work? There can't be two separate, like, greatest things. He's like, I know, there are two things, but really, it's the same. Both of these are the greatest command. He says, the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now listen to this. There is no commandment, singular, greater than these, plural. Jesus, I want one greatest command. He says, I know, I just gave it to you. But that's two, I know, but it's the most important one. Ah, I don't get it. It's hard. He says, I, I know, but if you, you got to hold both of these at the same time. Love God with everything that you have and love your neighbor as yourself. That is one thing working together, and it's the greatest command. It is the top priority. And when Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself, like he, he didn't just pull that out of nowhere either. Again, this comes straight from the Old Testament. Jesus is quoting his scripture back to the Jewish people. This idea of love your neighbor as yourself, believe it or not, is actually found in Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus 19, verse 18. Um, And and if you've ever read the the book of Leviticus, you're like, what? Like, that seems like a really strange place to find that because Leviticus is weird. It's like all of these, all these ceremonial cleanliness laws, the different sacrifices and the different offerings. It was how the temple system was gonna work. If you've ever tried to like, I'm going to read through the Bible in a year thing, and you're like, you're reading Genesis, and it's cool. There's lots of stories, and then you get to Exodus. It's pretty cool, too. Lots of stories, and you know, God saving the people out of Egypt, and the plagues, and all that stuff. I'm like, that's cool, and then you hit Leviticus, and you're like, what the heck just happened? Like, now I'm just killing animals, and goats, and pigeons. I'm not sure what just happened. It's like this obscure book about, you know, ceremonial cleanliness, and all this. Like, what? This doesn't make sense, but tucked in there, is love your neighbor as yourself. And it's found in Leviticus 19, and what's so interesting is before we get to the second half of verse 18, which is like the love your neighbor as yourself part, you find all these really like practical, here's what it looks like to love your neighbor. 
And so I, I just want to like fire off a couple of these. So like heading up to Leviticus 19, 18, you'll find things like, don't reap everything out of your crop, but save some for the poor and the foreigner. Like, you, you know, you've got a crop, you've got something, don't squeeze every last drop of it. Don't keep it all to yourself. You leave something on the table so those who are less fortunate you, than you can survive. We read things throughout there like don't steal, don't lie, don't deceive each other. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Don't hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. You know, pay people what they're worth. Don't, don't curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. Do not pervert justice. Don't show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the, to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Hey, no playing favorites. No playing favorites. Don't go around spreading slander among your people. Don't do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. And then finally, you get to, but love, the, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so Jesus reflects back on that and he brings these two things together. Love God with everything you have in you. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he brings these two things together in a new way for the very first time. Like something that was there all along and when, when, when he's asked, hey, what's the greatest command? It's interesting because Jesus like introduces what seems like a brand new thing and it kind of is. To, to love God, be fully devoted to him and love your neighbor as yourself and it's this new thing that Jesus is unleashing but at the same time, he's like, it was there all along. It was God's heartbeat from the very beginning that what God wanted is, is people to be fully devoted to him and that plays out in the way that we love and care for each other. Jesus says, you want to know what's most important? Here it is. Love God. Love your neighbor. It's been there all along. And, and now that this teacher of the law responds. And so Jesus has said this. And again, we, we, don't, we don't know uh, whether he's sincere or not, but what he says is astounding. We, we, we read his response, verse 32, says, well said, teacher. Like, I mean, how do you respond to Jesus after he drops something like that? You're like, yeah, you're right. I mean, you just always go with Jesus is right. Well said, teacher, the man replied, you are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. To, to love God with everything you have and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than burnt offerings and sacrifices, all of them. I, I, I don't know if we can even get our, our heads around the significance of this statement. Here is, is a man who is an expert in the law. The very law that says, this is how you relate to God. This is how you're good with God. Here's how the temple system is supposed to work. Here's all the law and all the sacrifices and all the offerings you have to make. A guy that knew it inside and out. And he says, you know what? You're right. Being fully committed and devoted to God and loving your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Like, he, he's saying that, that loving God and loving your neighbor, it, it is more than the very things that make the religious system go. The very thing that will like make the temple operate, the very thing that on the outside it looks like, hey, this is what following God is about. He said, no, that's not it. The loving God and loving your neighbor is more important than, than the, the religious machine. And the same is true today. It's more important than any of the exterior, external things that we could do. That loving God by loving our neighbors, how those two things play out, was more important than their religious system. It wasn't, it wasn't obvious, and it's, sometimes it's still not obvious. And, and even though it wasn't, like, it wasn't obvious, it was something that it wasn't, it wasn't really new. Again, it, it had been there all along. 
This was what the, the prophets, <coughs> ooh, excuse me, <coughs> the prophets in Israel had called the nation out for was this idea of failing to do this. And I, I want to look at one example of this, and there are several, but we only have time for one. But this idea of what, what God desires is a heartfelt commitment to Him, and that will play out in the way that we treat the people around us. has been there from the very beginning. So Isaiah chapter 1, um, starting in verse 11. This is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. He says, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord. I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you, when you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? It's just noise. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and convocations. These are all these religious festivals and ceremonies that they would hold. He says that they're... I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Can you imagine the slap in the face saying, you get together and you sing and you make offerings to me and you're like, we love God, yes we do. We love God, how about you? He says, it's just noise. It's, just, it's, it's worthless to me. Your, your gatherings are meaningless. They, they become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, this is scary, When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. And we're like, geez, God, man, that's rough. What's going on? Like, what has the nation of Israel done in this situation to to where they're getting this kind of a response from you? Like, it looks like they're trying to, you know, do the religious thing. They're trying to go to the temple. They're trying to, what we might say, they're trying to do church, right? They're bringing their offerings. And he says, well, here's, here's what's going on. Here's why this mentality your hands are full of blood. Like, you, you want to, God would say, like, you want to know why that I, I have no pleasure in your offerings and your sacrifices? Your hands are full of blood. I don't care about any of the religious stuff that you're doing. Look at how you're treating each other. Your hands are full of blood. And then we can kind of get an idea of what exactly they were doing or what they weren't doing, or how they were living, based upon the instruction that he gives them. He says, wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight and stop doing wrong. And what does it look like to to stop doing wrong, to get the evil out of there? He says, here's what it looks like. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless and plead the case of the widow. Love God by loving your neighbor. It was, it's been there the whole time. It's what it truly means. I'm like, I want to follow Jesus. How do I do that? I'm committed to him, and it plays out by how I love my neighbor. Our allegiance to Jesus and our love for our neighbor is more important than any other religious activity that we will ever do. And, and, and look, we do some great things, man. Like, it's, I, I, hear me when I say, you should, you should gather as a church. It's important that we do this. We should sing. We should pray. We should read scripture. We should do all the things. But if we do all those things and we're not actually loving the people around us and God looks at us and says of us what we just read there in Isaiah, it's worthless. It's meaningless. It's noise. Like, I'm wearied by it. You come to church every Sunday, it wearies me because you don't love each other. 
our allegiance to Jesus, our love for our neighbor is more important than any other religious activity will ever do, more, more important than church attendance and offerings and worship, and again, all of that is important. But the question comes down to, okay, am I, am I devoted? Am I committed? Do, does Jesus have my allegiance, my affection, my desires? Like every ounce of who I am says, I want Jesus and Jesus alone. Like am I in that place? And when I'm in that place, guess what's gonna happen? I'm gonna love my neighbor. Is that happening? Is that happening? And so again, this guy, he gives this brilliant response and says it's more important than than all of the religious activity we could ever do. And Jesus responds to kind of finish up this interaction. Verse 34 says that when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. You're not far from the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is what it's all about. Like, it's about the kingdom, like, the kingdom of God coming in the here and now through the person of Jesus. When Jesus showed up on the planet 2,000 years ago, he came proclaiming a message of, this is what my kingdom's like, this is what my kingdom's like, this is what my kingdom's like, here's what I'm here to do. I'm here to usher in the kingdom and to bring the kingdom of God crashing into our present reality. That's what Jesus came to do. That's what Jesus came proclaiming. And he looks at this guy who's like, here's what's most important. Love God and love, love your neighbor. He says, you're not far from the kingdom. The rule, the reign, the justice, the goodness, of, and the love of God in the here and now, he says, you're not far from it. You are right on the edge of the kingdom of God. You're like right on the precipice. You are, you are right there. Like Jesus might even say, hey, you know what? When you are loving God and loving your neighbor, you are knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Yeah, some of you got that, okay? He's like, you are just like, you are right there. You are so close. You are so close. You're at the door of the kingdom. The gospel, you know, the good news about Jesus, it is not only about my personal salvation. It is not just about, I prayed a prayer or I go to church and so I'm forgiven so I'll go to heaven someday when I die. That is a small little piece. It's part of the gospel, but it's not the whole thing. The, the, the gospel, the good news, is the good news about the king, Jesus, and his kingdom coming, and that we are invited into it. It's the whole thing. And Jesus says, when you're loving God and loving your neighbor, you're right there. You're right there. You're on the edge. Let me just say this, and I think for our church, like, no one's going to bat an eye at this, um, but there are certain Christian circles <laughs> that I would get into trouble for saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway, because you guys, you, you can handle it, that loving your neighbor is not an implication of the gospel. It's part of the gospel. Because the gospel is more than just, Jesus died for me personally so I can go to heaven someday. It's no, Jesus died to redeem and restore all of creation to bring about the kingdom. That's the reality that we look forward to. And so it, when we pray things like, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that is saying, I want the kingdom here and now. It's part of this beautiful gospel that loving the people around me is not part of, uh, just an implication of the gospel. It is part of it. it it's all tied up in one. It's not like, okay, well, um, I love Jesus and I'm fully committed to him and that's most important and maybe if I get around to it, if I'm having a good day, I'll love the people around me. Like, no, it, it, we, we hold on to both of these things, and that's, that, that's what this command is. That's why when Jesus says this is what's most important, it's what he's getting at. It's two sides of the same coin. It's two things that cannot be separated. 
It's saying, I am totally and completely all in on Jesus. He's got, I mean, everything. Like, I'm, I, I, I am, I am, I am totally, like, I just, everything in me, my entire life, I want to be in on Jesus. I'm loving him with all that I have. And I'm loving my neighbor as myself. That it's both of those things, and we can't, we can't separate the two. And we try. We, we try and we end up with kind of two very different pictures of Christian faith and both of them are wrong. But we, we try one way and we say, well, it's all about this first part. I'm gonna love God with everything I have. You know, I'm, I'm doing all the, the, the religious activities. I'm going to church and it's important and, and that stuff is and that's good. But we let go of the second part and we end up at this place that says, well, it's, you know, it's noise and it's worthless and it's all these other things. Or, or then sometimes we'll lean really far the other direction. Be like, I'm just going to be completely focused on loving my neighbor. I'm just going to love people. I'm just going to love people. I'm just going to love them. Um, and, you know, being committed and devoted to Jesus, yeah, I'll, I'll do that sometimes. But I'm just going to focus on loving, loving, loving. But you, you, can't, you can't really love your neighbor if you're not fully devoted to Jesus. Because if anything else has our primary devotion and allegiance in life, there will come a moment where I, I have to like, ah, loving my neighbor uh, is going to cost me something. And if something else has my primary affection and devotion, I will say, not gonna love my neighbor. That's why what Jesus said at the beginning, that's what he starts with, hey, love God with everything you have in you. It's that idea of that Shema, the Lord is our God, him alone. We don't have any other God, any other uh, thing that we're committed to because the minute I let something else uh, kind of step in or slide into that God slot in my life that has my affection or my devotion, the minute I become my own God, my desires, my happiness, um, you know, my identity, my politics, my little group or my little tribe, the minute that those things become kind of a top priority, there's going to come a point where I have to, where I'm like, I'm supposed to be loving my neighbor, but this thing that's my top priority says, ooh, you can't love your neighbor because you're not going to be able to serve me. But when Jesus is top priority in our life and we come to a point that says, I'm loving my neighbor, oh, this is hard, let me look to where my focus is, let me look to who my God is, I look at him and he goes, yeah, I just died for everybody. Like, I gave my life on the cross. Like, this is what it looks, this is what Jesus looks like. This is where my devotion is. And I go, okay, I can love my neighbor. I can love my neighbor. Because it, it's a faith and it's a life of saying, I'm dying to myself so I can live for others. I'm, I'm trying to just emulate the, 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 what, what Christ has done. It's two sides of the same coin. We can't separate it. Love God and love neighbor. It's top priority. It's the greatest command. It's the most important and it really is that simple, and it sounds really hard, but if we forget everything else, if we keep coming back to this idea, we'll be on the right track. It, it sounds simple, and it, and it is in concept. It's just really, really hard to live out. And, and we may forget a lot of things, and we may you know, mess up a lot of things, and we may not know the nuance and the details of faith. There's like a lifetime journey of figuring those things out, but if we will keep coming back to the idea of I'm, I'm, I'm devoted to God, I'm, I'm loving God, and I'm loving my neighbor. In the words of Jesus, he would say, you're not far from the kingdom of God when we do that. We love others, and, and it's not just like a, I don't get to define what love is. I'm like, yeah, I love that person. It's like, but did you though? But did you? We don't get to define, I think I love that person because Jesus has already done that for us. It, it is a Jesus brand of love that is defined by the cross. We love others with a Jesus brand of love, and that's what we're gonna spend the next couple of weeks um, talking about what, what does that look like how do we do that but we can't get into any of that unless we started right here like what is priority number one 
Like, uh, where, where, where do we begin? It has to start here because it has to start with a transformed heart, like something that happens within us that says, ah, I'm moving towards loving God and loving neighbor because on my own, I don't do that very well. It's got to start with this, honestly, it, it has to start with this recognition that, okay, love God, love neighbor. <laughs> I'm bad at that. Like, I have failed to do that every day. I fail miserably. I'm like, I'm going to love God today. Five minutes later, I'm not. I'm going to love other people today. Five minutes later, I'm like, yeah, but I think I love me more than other people. It starts with this recognition of knowing I failed to do that. I am terrible at it. Like, but recognizing that I've failed to do it, that I stink at it, that I'm terrible at it, isn't where the story ends. Because we're, we're at this strange like, moment in culture where that often is where people's story ends. Like, for, we're at this place where in culture, when, whenever we mess up, we say something we shouldn't, we do something we shouldn't, doesn't matter how long ago it was, there is no forgiveness, there is no redemption, there is no chance for you to improve or to be better, or like, hey, you messed up, but that's okay, you're not that person anymore. It's just like, we're at this place now that says, nope, I'm sorry, you're done, you're canceled, you are labeled as unredeemable, you're a terrible person, and you can't ever grow, you can't ever change. There is no redemption in the cultural story that we are living in. But Jesus says that's not the story that you're being invited into. That's not the story that you're being invited into. I mean, you know, I, I read from Isaiah a, a little bit ago, and it's like this kind of scathing God is like, Israel, like, what are you doing? You're failing at loving me because you're failing at loving the people around you. But I stopped one verse short. I stopped on verse 17 because I wanted to read verse 18 now. That, that after, after he goes through this whole thing of like, you need to, you know, you need to basically shape up. I'm tired. Your, your sacrifice is all of it's worthless. You're, you're, you know, perverting justice and you're not upholding the, the cause of the widow and the foreigner and the orphan. Like, you're terrible. It's like, what? You got to get that figured out. Right after he says that, ends in verse 17. The next thing in verse 18 says this. Come now. Let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And though they are crimson, they shall be like wool. I just love that phrase, come, let's settle the matter. Like, let, let, let's, let's settle, let, let's figure this out. In other words, we're not gonna pretend that you're fine and everything's okay. You've got some issues we need to work through. You know, we just spent all these last verses talking about this. Like, that, that's a problem, but that's not where it ends. Let's settle this, let's figure this out. It's God saying to his people, don't you ever for a second think I'm going to give up on you. This is not the end of your story. Let's settle this matter. Let's, let's take care of that sin issue. You failed, but we're going to move on. And that Jesus, the only person in human history to ever perfectly do this, to perfectly love God, to perfectly love others, and his death and resurrection has now thrown open the doors to forgiveness, to grace, to redemption. He's thrown open the doors to the kingdom of God. And the invitation for all of us is to come now. Let us settle the matter. Let's take care of, of your sin that is you know, bright red, scarlet, crimson. We're going to make you white as snow. Like, let, let, let's, let's get that figured out because we've, we've got a sin issue. Sin, I mean, it's, it's a kind of a religious word, but it's, it means to miss the mark. And, and really, when you read throughout the, the biblical story, it's missing the mark of what it means to truly be human because to truly be human means to be fully devoted to God and fully loving the people around us. 
And sin is just, man, I'm, I'm blowing it at doing that. And, he's like, like, I w- and, and Jesus says, I recognize that you're not doing it and that you're failing at it, but let's settle this. And so his death and resurrection makes that a possibility. The invitation is to come to him with our sin, with our failings, to have it wiped away. And more than that, though, that's just the beginning of the story. We are then invited to live this transformed kind of life, a life transformed by the Holy Spirit that allows us then to move closer and closer to loving God and to loving our neighbor as ourself. But we always remember that the only way, the only way that becomes a possibility for us, the only way I can ever move closer to loving God and to loving my neighbor is because of Jesus. It's through Jesus, it's through his life, it's through his death, it's through his resurrection, it's through his power, it's through his spirit that's still working through me. It is all about Jesus. Jesus.